Jesus exposes this man's love of money, his, his, his love of the treasures he's amassed on earth, and his self-focus more than God. Because to say, get rid of your wealth, is to reject the riches and resources that you've amassed. To say, give to the poor, isn't just an act of generosity. It's, it's a lowering of your own standard from whatever class to a class below it. You're, you're rejecting your power and your status, and it takes great humility. And this man can't. He's unable to give up the things that define him. And, and hear me, church, the only goal of religion, morality, good works without God, the only outcome of that, the only goal of that is to make yourself look good. Is that fair? The only outcome, the only goal of, of religion and doing good things without a focus on God is to make yourself look good. It's about status. It's about me. It's not about God. His religion is not about God. But I want to pause for a sec because we're talking about how do, how do we become a good news people if, if you, as one of God's good news people, were asked, how do you inherit eternal life? What would be the common way that you'd answer? Hey, that's a pretty bold question. Maybe it's someone you've been praying for. Maybe it's, you know, whatever else. Like, someone comes to you and says, how do you inherit eternal life? What's the common Christian answer right now? In our world, it's, let's pray a prayer, right? It's, there, there's these four verses in the book of Romans, and if you can say in your head that you believe those things are true, or even say out loud from your heart one time that Jesus is Lord, done. Is that fair? We, we pray a prayer for spiritual laws, Romans road, let's go get baptized, like it's a one-time thing, and we're done. Everything else in common Christian culture right now, everything that follows that, the rest of your life, everything is just optional beyond that. How do you inherit eternal life? Pray a prayer, let's get baptized. That's not what Jesus teaches here. And to be fair, and to be very clear, Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. What Jesus is seeking is a true change of heart and a true change of allegiance. And how is that marked? For this man, it's by a willingness to lay down everything else and obey Jesus. Like, like that's what repentance is. A turning from something else, turning to a better story. Turning from a false God, turning to a better God. For the rich religious ruler, turning away from himself, from his riches, from his power, from his fame, and turning to Jesus as a better God and better source of satisfaction. That's what repentance would look like. And that's what Jesus says, follow me. Don't just pray a prayer one time. Follow me. Come with me. Let me be your better God. So, so that makes sense? And we have to get this. Jesus doesn't rebuke the rich religious ruler's religion. He doesn't, he doesn't say even that wealth or power or fame is, is bad. Jesus simply answers the question that this man asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? By inviting him to use his riches and power and fame for God and for the good of others as an overflow of what he actually believes. But the rich, rich religious ruler can't let go of himself and his power 
and his fame and his riches. Why not? It's those things that define him. It's those things that define him. For all of us, I want to submit that there's something we hide behind, that there's something that gives us identity, that there's something we can't let go of that keep Jesus from being the full king and sit on the full throne of our life. Is that fair? There's something or some things that would cause us to say no and walk away sad. This is not lost on me where Luke drops this story. If you have your Bibles open, you can see even just the headlines in the rest of the, the rest of the chapter. The headlines were not there, by the way, when the Bible was written. They are added in the Middle Ages. But yours might say something like mine do. Who else is Jesus talking to in this chapter? The persistent widow, someone who's experienced great loss and has inherent need. The tax collector who says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He recognizes his inherent need. Uh, Right before this rich young ruler passage, Jesus says, let the children come to me. Children have inherent needs. The blind beggar follows this. All of these people have inherent needs. Who alone in this chapter is not desperate for a better king, a better story? It's the one person who thinks he has it all together. Just like some of us, it's the one person who doesn't feel an inherent need for a better God and better king. And so Jesus, Luke 18, verse 24, seeing that the man had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's a lot of debate over what that means is it literal? Is there a gate called that that was very... There's all sorts of like, you can get into it. It's weird. Um, but the bottom line doesn't really matter because the, the end of any interpretation of this eye of the needle thing is that it's nearly impossible for it to happen. And yet it's easier for that to happen than for with someone with wealth to enter the kingdom. Why? Is money inherently bad? No, Jesus says elsewhere that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not money itself, it's the love of it. Why? Because riches, wealth, stuff, similar to power, similar to fame, can lead to this false sense of security, a fake sense of satisfaction. It can lead us to rely functionally on a lesser God. What does money say? It's what every other false God says. You don't need the true God. You don't need salvation. You can buy your way out of most anything. You don't need a better life. You don't need a better king. You can be satisfied. Money's not everything, but it can buy everything. You can do it yourself. These are the siren calls of money and power and fame. And, and, and here's an honest question. On some degree, do you resonate with that? You don't need a better God. You can do it yourself. You can power your way through it. Whether you're rich, powerful, famous compared to those around you or Jeff Bezos or or the president or the boss or or whatever else, are are you generally able to find satisfaction? Are you generally able to find comfort? Are you generally able to take care of yourself in a way that makes you not depend on God? 
If yes, what does that say? But if no, how do you deal with that dissatisfaction? For most of us, it's, well, I got to aim higher, work harder, go faster, do more. The answer to my dissatisfaction is me. Power through, pursue myself, make it happen, get it done. And if I'm honest, of, of all of these weeks that we've been walking through and seeing different stories and different ways that Jesus interacts, um, I think that, that the rich religious ruler uh, might be one of the better stereotypes of the average North Texas Christian churchgoer. Because we like this idea of eternal life, and we like looking at the teachings of Jesus, but are we not pretty quick to reject Jesus if he invades our current life and our comfort and asks a little too much of me during this life now? Is that fair? Is that you? It's me at times. In other words, what, what, what would it be if Jesus said, give that thing up? What would you say no to? You don't have to answer out loud. No, that, that would be too much if you asked that of me, Jesus. What satisfies you? What satiates you outside of God and his goodness? Where do you find comfort and control and identity and happiness outside of God? Who or what sits on your throne that rightly belongs to Jesus? If, if you say, I can't give that over, what we're saying is I worship that, I cling to it. It is, it is at least a God. It is at least a place that I find just as much satisfaction. We're very similar to the rich religious ruler. And I'm intentionally asking you a lot, is this fair? Is this, yeah, I want, I want us to be intentionally real and in, introspective in this. I also want to kind of bring us to this sense of hopelessness. Because if we're honest, we can go around the room and every one of us would have something that we're tempted to put on the throne outside of Jesus, right? Some of us have, have done better with it in some moments. Some of us have done worse with it in some moments. But, but I want to bring us to the sense of hopelessness because frankly, like that's where the disciples are left in this story. Whatever wealth, power, fame you have is false and fading. And, and what Jesus is, is saying to this man is there's a better source of satisfaction. What Jesus invites you to today, you, is a better source of satisfaction. But like the rich religious ruler, we're all tempted to reject that offer and to decline that invitation and that better source of satisfaction. Does that leave us in this hopeless state? And here's where Jesus meets us with good news. Again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you can just sense the like hopelessness, the wringing of hands from his disciples. Those who heard it said, then, how, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible for God. Possible with God. You get what Jesus is saying? 
Do you get the relief and the good news for those of us who try to hold everything together and power through and manage everything by our finances and our wealth and our status and platform, whatever else? In the sense of hopelessness, what Jesus is saying is even when we are unwilling, even when I am unwilling to give up lesser sources of satisfaction and identity and joy for God, God is not giving up on us. God is still pursuing us and offering time and time again better satisfaction, better joy, better identity. And then, almost as if to prove how possible it is with God, Jesus tells one more story, and then in chapter 19 shows us how possible all things are with God. He tells this story. Perhaps you've heard it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. We don't know if he's extremely or very rich, but he's at least rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully, received him joyfully, received him joyfully. It's a loaded word. And when they saw it, the crowds, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. It's pretty judgy. And Zacchaeus stood. He was little, so he stood. And said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, it's a bold statement, I restore it fourfold. He's a tax collector. You know what tax collectors were famous for in this time? Defrauding everyone of everything. And so he's saying, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to restore it times four. Here's what you have to get. First, Jesus broke all of society's rules to go and have dinner with this unclean reject of a tax collector. Social rules, ritual rules, moral rules. Jesus became religiously unclean by entering his house. As a good news people, are we willing to go against society and reputation and what others think of us to enter into people's worlds and offer them some sort of hope and good news? But second, what are some similarities between the rich religious ruler from the last chapter and Zacchaeus and this one? Chief tax collector, they would skim off the top. This man was rich, we're told. As, as that chief tax collector, he has power, he has the, the, the authority of the Roman government behind him. And similar to the rich religious ruler, Zacchaeus seeks Jesus. Jesus interacts with him and makes this request. What's the difference, though, between these two men? It's in verse 8. The rich religious ruler couldn't give up his riches, his status, his fame. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it for 
fold. Again, I want to be clear, Zacchaeus is not saved because of what he does. What he does is an overflow of a truly changed heart. Now, by law, if you steal something, you owe the value of that thing plus 20%. But Zacchaeus is going to restore 400% of those he defrauded. And to give a whole half of everything he owned to the poor, essentially Zacchaeus was literally bankrupting himself. What would prompt Zacchaeus to go to such great lavish extent and to do what the rich religious ruler couldn't? It's realizing what the rich religious ruler couldn't. The lavish generosity of a better, satisfying, greater God. Zacchaeus became good news, sorry, Jesus became good news to Zacchaeus in a way that the rich religious ruler could not accept. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks to his friends in Philippians and says this. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted it not as gain, but as loss for the sake of Jesus. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's a far stronger word than rubbish if we were to translate it literally. I count it all as in order that I may gain Jesus and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, not by my own power, is what he's saying, not by my own ability, but rather having a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is financial language that he's using, gain, loss, surpassing worth, but you know what you know what Paul's actually talking about? In Philippians 3, he's just gone through his reputation. I was this kind of guy. I was educated by this. Here's my family. He's talking about his power, his prestige, his status, and he's saying, I give it all up for the sake of knowing Jesus. This is what we see in Luke 19. This is what we see Zacchaeus doing. He was willing to lay down his power, his riches, his fame, his wealth, and follow Jesus. While the rich religious ruler loved his power, uh, riches, and fame too much to be able to do so. Zacchaeus was able to humble himself and use all that he had to serve a better king and to bless people with his wealth and to entrust his life to a better power. Zacchaeus truly followed Jesus, the rich young ruler, could not. And again, what makes the difference? It's even the title or the response that they address Jesus with. Do you remember the very beginning how the rich young ruler referred to Jesus? He calls him good teacher. It's not bad. It's not false. It's just not enough. A teacher imparts knowledge. What does Zacchaeus call Jesus In verse 8, do you remember? I'll put it back on the screen. Behold, Lord. That one-word distinction may seem small, but it makes all the difference in the world. You agree? That difference in posture shows the difference in these men's heart and their willingness to respond to Jesus or not. 
And I would suggest that your posture, your title that you're willing to give Jesus shows your heart and your willingness to respond and follow or not. What is Lord, God, King in satisfaction for the rich religious ruler? Power, wealth, fame. He couldn't accept the good news that Jesus was a better Lord, better God, better King, better satisfaction. What was Lord, God, King in satisfaction for Zacchaeus? Jesus. And if that's true, because that's true, Zacchaeus was willing to humble himself and give up his status and give up his position, give up his wealth and use the resources as gifts from God in service to God and blessing others. So I brought us at the end of the rich religious ruler story to this point where I hope you felt a little bit hopeless. Do you still feel hopeless? Jesus offers immense hope. To kind of combine the ends of these two stories, this is the end of the rich young ruler's story. Those who heard it said, who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then as if to prove his point at the end of this interaction with Zacchaeus, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house since you are also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And guess what, church? That truth that Jesus offers with man it is impossible, with God it is possible, I came to seek and save the lost, that truth is still what Jesus offers today. Jesus is good news because whatever else you find satisfaction, identity, value, and worth in is false and fading and fleeting and will leave you empty. I love the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read it, this wise sage comes to the end of his life, and he's tried to find satisfaction and meaning in everything other than God. And you know what he finds? The refrain in Ecclesiastes, after trying to find satisfaction in wealth and romance, if I can use that term loosely, and stuff and fame and both bad things, quote-unquote, and good things, you know what, you know what he says? It's all a vapor. It's all fleeting. It's all grasping at the wind. Everything we think is satisfying will leave us. Everything we find our identity in is ungraspable. It fades away. Every other answer is false. But man, the allure of wealth and power and riches is real. That siren song, Settle for This, be satisfied with stuff. Live out this lesser identity. Is it tempting? Absolutely it is. But it's there that Jesus meets us with good news. I offer better satisfaction. It won't look the same, but it's better. I offer a better identity. It won't get you as many followers, but, but it's better. I offer you a better answer. And salvation came to Zacchaeus' house not because he gave away his stuff, but because he was willing to repent of the lesser places that he found satisfaction, identity, and comfort, and declare his need for Jesus alone as Lord. And for those of us who would call Jesus our Lord, the next question is, is our lives an overflow of that lordship? Zacchaeus is saved because in his heart he gave his life to Jesus, and after he gave his life to Jesus, he was willing to give everything else. So to, to, to wrap us up, um, we're trying to be tangible this fall and ask how we 
can both see and speak Jesus as good news to ourselves and to our church community and also to our non-believing friends, family members, and neighbors. And so here's a couple of things that, that might apply here, some invitations that Jesus might be giving us. First, help people see what their treasures and idols actually are. And then if we do find gentle, maybe drip, drip, drip over time, not fire hose slam it down their throat kind of ways to show them how good God is, even in contrast or especially in contrast with the things that they find satisfaction in. That's for them. Where does it start, though? It starts in our own heart. Do you believe for yourself that Jesus is worth giving everything for? And if so, do you live like that's true? What's it look like for us to display how good Jesus is by stewarding every, everything he's given as a resource for him and for others? Wealth, power, fame, any authority, resource, platform you have is an opportunity to give freely to God and people, but only because Jesus is a better God, is a better source of satisfaction, and gave freely and fully to you. Do you believe that?